it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I have two parts for you on today's show. In part one, I will review our big win on Sunday over Inter. And in part two, I will give you my thoughts on the whole Luciano Spalletti situation and assess who, among the many, many coaches we've been linked to, are realistic replacements. So let's get right into it with the match against Inter. As I'm sure you're already aware, we won the match 3-1 on goals from Andre Frank Zambuangisa, Giovanni Di Lorenzo, and Gianluca Gaetano, while Romelu Lukaku scored the lone goal for Inter. This was by far our best performance in nearly two months. It was the first game we've scored more than one goal since our match day 27 victory over Torino, which was on the 19th of March. Since that game against Torino, we had scored one goal or less in 10 consecutive matches in all competitions. During that period, we had a record of three wins, four draws, and three losses and we were outscored 11-7. to Now, we do need to take those stats with a grain of salt. Even though we only secured the Serie A title on match day 35, we had a 19-point lead after that win over Torino. We didn't want to admit it at the time, but with such a big lead, the only question was when we would win the Scudetto rather than if we would win it. So, Aside from the Champions League matches against Milan, in which I thought we played really well and we just got beaten on a couple of episodes, I think a big part of our quote-unquote struggles over the past two months was that we simply lacked the motivation that we had earlier in the season. 
That was one of the reasons. Of course, there were others as well. We had a few injuries, including Osimen, Simeone, and Raspodori all being out for one match. The opposition figured out how to stop Cavada as well. But this was the first time in a while where we seemed like we were really motivated to win. And a few players mentioned before and after the match that they knew that Inter were the only club that Napoli had yet to beat this season. So for the first time in club history, we have beaten every opponent in the league in a single season. Now we have to point out the obvious here, which is that we played more than half of this match with an extra man. Roberto Gagliardini was sent off in the 40th minute. In reality, he was lucky to even last that long. That foul on Anguissa probably should have been his fourth yellow card of the match. Obviously, that's not possible, but it was his fourth yellow card offense. He got away with one in the sixth minute where he pulled the Lorenzo shirt to stop a break. That is a blatant yellow card. It doesn't matter how early in the match the foul was committed. That was a terrible non-call from Livio Marinelli, and it kind of set the precedent for future calls in the match. Gagliardini picked up his first caution in the 19th minute for a late tackle on Di Lorenzo. That was already his third foul of the match, so even Marinelli had no choice but to record Gagliardini's name in his book at that point. Gagliardini should have been sent off four minutes later for a late tackle on Cavara, and again he was spared by Marinelli. And finally, he was sent off after that late tackle on Anguissa, who did well to anticipate the pass from Nicolo Barella. I don't know what Gagliardini was thinking. You simply cannot lunge into tackles like that when you are already on a yellow card. Now, part of the blame has to go to Simone Inzaghi as well for not removing Gagliardini from the match when he had the opportunity to do so. But I think he took a calculated risk there. First of all, it was clear to me very early on that Inter would have been more than content with a draw from this match. Inter were defending well, and sometimes having a player sent off justifies playing in a low block. Also, Mkhitaryan was hurt, and Inzaghi had to rotate his squad because of the crazy schedule that they have at the end of this season. Prior to this match, they had the return leg of their Champions League tie against Milan in the semifinals, Then after this match, they had the Coppa Italia final against Fiorentina, which they came from behind to win 2-1. And then next round, they play another tough match against Atalanta, so he has to rotate his squad. Maybe we wouldn't have been so dominant against Inter's best 11, but you can only play against the team on the field. And even before Gagliardini was sent off, we saw the return of a lot of qualities that won Napoli the Scudetto. Out of possession, we won the ball back quickly with our high press and our counter press, and Gisa and Lobotka were really on it. It's like they knew that the passes were coming before they were made, and they were just always in a position to intercept them. When Inter did beat the press, our wingers would hustle back to regain possession. We saw Cavada picking pockets and Elmas sliding to win the ball back. In possession, we were extremely patient in the build-up, we dominated possession, and we had many sequences where we would string together 10, 15, 20 passes at a time. We used the entirety of the pitch to stretch the Inter defense, and that was enabled by all three of our midfielders and our wingers moving really well off the ball. We often saw Cavada and Elmas drifting into the middle of the park, while Di Lorenzo and Oliveira got forward on the wings. That served to offset the numerical disadvantage of playing against Inter's 3-4-2-1 or 3-5-2 in defense. 
Piotr Zelinski played a big part of breaking down that Inter defense. I've said this before, but you can always tell very early in the match if Zelinski is up for it. If you see him make a clever turn or a sharp cutback on the back heel or something along those lines, you know he is going to have a good match. We saw in this match how strong he and Cavada are at playing in tight spaces. They are the two most skillful players on this team. Raul Bellanova had his hands full with Cavada running at him on Napoli's left wing. We were creative with our set pieces, led by Zielinski again. In the first half, we had a free kick where we set up as if we were going to cross the ball into the area, and instead Zielinski just rolled the ball forward to Engisa. He didn't score, but it was a pretty good chance. There was another free kick where again we set up for the cross, and Zielinski nearly caught Onana off his line with a curling shot towards the first post. That didn't miss by much, and then in the second half, we saw Zielinski roll a corner kick to Di Lorenzo at the first post, and he forced Onana to make a good save. Probably our worst set piece of the match was the free kick that Osiman took from distance and struck it straight into the wall. It's not the first time we've tried that and it never seems to work. I think it's just a little bit too predictable. It's not hard to figure out that if Osiman is standing over the ball instead of waiting in the area for a cross, then he's probably going to go direct for a goal. Finally, we were clinical in our finishing. Both Nguisa and Di Lorenzo took their chances really well. Even though Nguisa hadn't scored in a while, it did feel like this goal was coming for him. Shortly after that miss from the free kick set piece, he had a very similar chance to the one he scored on where the ball popped up to set up the volley except on his left foot and he didn't miss by much. And then in the second half, he set himself up for a volley at the edge of the area, but he leaned back on the volley and sent it flying well over the bar. On the goal, he timed the volley to perfection and really made an extremely difficult play look very easy. It's hard enough to hit a volley into the ground with that kind of power and precision, let alone to do that while you are spinning. Now, perhaps Onana could have done better to stop the shot, but it was hit with a lot of power. Had Onana gotten a hand on the ball, then he probably would have made the save, but it seemed to come off his wrist instead and ended up in the back of the goal. I think this goal really highlighted what a difference that extra man made because Napoli were moving the ball really well in the build-up to the goal and Inter just could not keep up. There was always a man open. The second goal was just pure class from Giovanni Di Lorenzo. There's not a whole lot to break down tactically about that goal, aside from the fact that once again, we were able to build up easier with the extra man. But I don't feel like Inter did a whole lot wrong on the play. Sure, they gave Di Lorenzo a little bit of space to take the shot, and perhaps someone should have stepped up. But as a defender, you're generally okay with a fullback going for a goal from outside the area with his weaker foot. On most occasions, he's not going to hit the target or he's going to shoot straight at the keeper. You're certainly not expecting him to curl the ball perfectly into the top corner of the goal like Di Lorenzo did there. This was the perfect way to cap an incredible season with our captain scoring the winner against the other best team in the league and a team who's had our number in recent seasons. I loved that he ran straight at Luciano Spalletti to give him a big hug after the goal. Spalletti said in his post-match press conference that he asked Di Lorenzo in training when he's going to come and give him a hug. That's something I've noticed that Di Lorenzo has done all season since taking the captain's armband. Whenever a teammate scores, he's usually one of the first players to get to the goal scorer 
and he gives them a big hug. So I guess Spalletti wanted in on that action. Spalletti did say it was a bit of a show, though you can see that he thoroughly enjoyed that moment. The Lorenzo story was a little bit different. He said the coach is really important to him and to the team. He likes to celebrate with his teammates, even those on the bench. And that was a dedication to them. Dries Mertens also chimed in saying that he taught Di Lorenzo well. I'm sure there's more to that comment. Maybe they've practiced shooting together in training. But it was a very Mertens kind of shot. Another beautiful moment was the third goal scored by Gianluca Gaetano. He was born in Napoli. He rose through the Napoli youth system right up to the Primavera before he was loaned to Cremonese for two seasons. He was a key player for Cremonese's push for promotion last season, and they wanted to keep him for this season, but I suspect that both Zerbin and Gaetano were kept in the Napoli squad because we had the club-grown squad positions available. Of course, he was low on the pecking order with midfielders like Anguissa, Zielinski, Lobotka, Elmas, and even Ndombele in the squad. At Cremonese, he played as an attacking midfielder who had a license to roam, whereas at Napoli, Spalletti tried to convert him into a regista like he did with Marcelo Brozovic at Inter. I imagine that was a work in progress and perhaps a project that will never be completed given the rumors around Spalletti's departure, which we'll talk about more in part 2. Including this match, Gaetano made only 10 appearances across all competitions, for a total of 135 minutes. None of his appearances were longer than 17 minutes, yet he still managed two goal contributions. He scored in this match, and he assisted on Raspadori's match winner against Spezia earlier in the season. I thought he played really well in this short appearance, again, helped by the fact that we were up by a man. And then, of course, the images of him getting emotional, celebrating the goal under the curva, were really beautiful to see. He proudly posted on Instagram about the goal as well. It would have been a perfect night had it not been for Lukaku's equalizer, which nearly put a damper on the celebrations. Lukaku is probably the most informed striker in the league at the moment. He scored six goals and tallied three assists in his last five league appearances, and I'd be shocked if he did not win the May Player of the Month award. For the life of me, I cannot figure out what Juan Jesus was doing on that play. Even if he didn't realize Lukaku was so close to him there, you have to be proactive on a play like that and simply clear the danger. You do not gamble hoping there is a teammate behind you. Fortunately, Di Lorenzo scored shortly after the equalizer, and maybe that equalizer made Di Lorenzo's goal feel even bigger than it was. But otherwise, a lot more attention would have been on Jesus after the match, and perhaps even on Spalletti, who continues to use Jesus over Ostergaard, though it is worth noting that had we not already won the league, Spalletti probably would not have replaced Kim Min-jae with Jesus with only a one-goal lead. Okay, the last thing I want to comment on is Victor Osimhen's anger at being taken off. We saw him say why to Spalletti, and then shove Marco Domenichini on his way to the bench, which I did not like at all. I've said this numerous times on the pod, I don't mind the anger from players coming off because it shows that they care and they're passionate, but I think he took it a little bit too far with that shove. For me, that is disrespectful to the coaching staff, and I hope he apologized to Domenichini after the match. 
Spalletti was asked about that by the zone after the match and he said Osiman can get as angry as he wants but it's not always the coach's fault when he makes a change. He said forwards happiness is determined by whether they score or not and sometimes they underperform. It happens. He also noted that Osiman missed two training sessions during the week once because he felt ill and another because he had to go renew his driver's license in Rome and that Simeone Raspadori and Gaetano are all strong players as well. Now, we know that Osimen is competing with Lautaro Martinez for Capo Canoniere, but Lautaro hadn't entered the match at that point, and he didn't for another 10 minutes after Osimen came off. Apparently, Osimen needs only two more goals to trigger a bonus payment per his contract, so he could have been upset about that as well, though given the tensions between Spalletti and De Laurentiis at the moment, I can't imagine that had any influence on Spalletti's decisions. We'll talk a little bit more about those tensions in part two. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to part two of the Fort Sinopoli podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Fort pod. It's entirely voluntary, there are no set tiers but it does help us to continue to produce content both on the podcast and on our website at fortsanaplipress.com. Okay, so a number of people have reached out to me seeking my opinion on the whole Luciano Spalletti situation, so I figured I might as well share my thoughts on the podcast. Just about every prominent reporter is reporting that Spalletti is set to leave the club. Now, before I get to potential replacements... Let me just explain briefly how it is that Napoli's first Scudetto winning coach in a very long time has suddenly decided to leave and has made that decision even before the season has ended. James Horncastle wrote a fantastic piece on this for The Athletic. I highly recommend that everybody check that out. But ultimately, this potential separation comes down to Spalletti's renewal being handled quite poorly by Dev Laurentiis. Napoli had a club option to extend Spalletti's contract for a year, which they exercised, but it's the way in which they exercised that option that has reportedly rubbed Spalletti the wrong way. Napoli advised Spalletti that the option had been exercised via a PEC, which is the email equivalent of a registered letter. That is indeed a very cold way to extend the contract of a man who just won the league title and who did it for a club who hadn't won the league in over three decades. Spalletti plays modern football, but he is a traditionalist, and traditionally, that conversation would have been had in person. If I had to guess, De Laurentiis probably wanted to avoid a face-to-face conversation because he knew Spalletti would ask for a pay increase, and De Laurentiis was under no obligation to give one. It was a club option. For me, that is just really poor contract management. Yes, the contract is in place, so ADL did not need to increase Spalletti's salary, but just like he's willing to increase Cavada's pay or Osiman's pay or Kim's pay to keep them longer, 
he should have been willing to increase Spalletti's pay to keep him longer as well. And it wouldn't have been unreasonable for Spalletti to ask for an increase and or an extension either. Last season, he got Napoli back into the Champions League. And this season, he won the league and got Napoli to the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Together, those two feats amounted to approximately 100 million euros in revenue for the club. And that's not even including any incremental merchandise sales like club shirts that would result from winning the league. Just think about how many shirts the club will sell next season with the Scudetto badge on it. Now, that face-to-face meeting did eventually happen at the Coco Loco restaurant about a week and a half ago, and it seemed to have gone quite well. Everyone was all smiles after they exited the restaurant, but I suspect that dinner was too little too late. After the Inter match, Spalletti said that everything had been defined and an announcement will be made on the 4th, which is the date of Napoli's final match of the season against Sampdoria. Now, in and of itself, that does not mean that Spalletti is leaving. It could equally mean that he is staying. Yet everyone and their mothers are reporting that Spalletti will leave at the end of the season, which is likely because of the comments both De Laurentiis and Spalletti made since that dinner. When Spalletti said the terms have been defined, it sounds a lot to me like he went to the Coco Loco and put his terms on the table. X year extension at Y million euros per season, and a decision must be made before the end of the season or I will walk. Before the Inter match, De Laurenti spoke to Sky Sport and when he was asked about Spalletti, he said, He's a champion and the champions have to find a field to express themselves at their best. He found it with us and everything worked. Let's hope that in the future he will be able to express his ability to aggregate even more. When asked if he would be better off in Naples, De Laurentiis said, Without a doubt, but in life, freedom is an immeasurable and invaluable good. We must not clip anyone's wings, and no one must do it with me. That is true to form from De Laurentiis. We've seen that approach of vilifying players who left the club because they were seeking vulgar money or vile currency. Spalletti was asked about that as well after the Inter match and he gave a very clever response saying, I don't know what he means by clipped wings, you'll have to ask him, it's not relevant to what was said over dinner, as for what I'm going to do, I don't need a pair of wings for it, I need a pair of Wellington boots. Of course, that is a hint that Spalletti intends to spend the final year of his contract on his farm in Tuscany. So unless De Laurentiis and Spalletti are just putting on a big show for dramatic effect, which I suppose we shouldn't put past either of these two gentlemen, the chances of Spalletti renewing do seem pretty slim at this point. Consequently, we've been linked to just about every coach that is out there, so I'm going to use the balance of the podcast to try to whittle down the list to who the realistic candidates are. Now, let me just say up front that this is not a scientific exercise. I'm basically going to apply simple logic, but it's possible that the club does something illogical. Also, I'm relying on the media reports on who we've been linked to as of the date of this recording, which is on Wednesday. It's certainly possible that the club is negotiating with other coaches who the media have yet to get wind of. So besides Spalletti... The 13 coaches I've seen Napoli linked to in alphabetical order by surname 
are Rafa Benitez, Sergio Conceição, Antonio Conte, Roberto De Zerbi, Alessio Dionisi, Luis Enrique, Marcelo Gallardo, Giampiero Gasperini, Vincenzo Italiano, Jurgen Klopp, Roberto Mancini, Thiago Motta, and Julian Nagelsmann. Now, the first condition I'm going to apply is coach's salary, because let's be honest, that Laurentiis is not going to pay a ridiculous salary to his coach. Ancelotti was reportedly paid 6 million euros net back in 2018, but that was for one of the best coaches of all time, and it was before the pandemic. I think the maximum De Laurentiis will pay his coach is around 4 million euros net, but he'll aim for something lower than that, and for reference, Spalletti is currently on 3.2 million euros net. Right away, that rules out Jurgen Klopp and Antonio Conte. Klopp is currently on £16 million gross, or roughly £8 million net. Sorry for anyone who's hoping for Klopp, especially if you saw the tweets from the fake Fabrizio Romano account, but he is simply too expensive. Antonio Conte was on £15 million gross at Tottenham, and he made even more than that at Inter. In my opinion, salary expectation also rules out Julian Nagelsmann and Sergio Conceição, Nagelsmann was earning somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 12 million a year at Bayern. I assume that is gross salary, which implies a net salary of about 5 to 6 million. So, unless he took a pay cut, Nagelsmann would also be too expensive. I also don't think he has the personality to deal with ADL, let alone the Italian and Napolitano media. Conceição makes 10 million euros gross at Porto, which is about 5 million euros net. So he would also have to take a pay cut, though I suppose that one is possible. The next filter we'll apply is current contract term. That to me rules out Roberto De Zerbi and Roberto Mancini. De Zerbi is under contract with Brighton and Hove Albion until 2026 and he has no intentions of leaving. After guaranteeing the club's first ever European Cup qualification with two rounds to spare no less, He said, for me, it's an honor to work here and to continue to work here. I never thought to change teams. I never thought to go back to Italy or to another Premier League team. Mancini is also under contract until 2026 with the Italy national team, and there's no indication that he's going to lose his job anytime soon. The only competitive game Italy plays before the start of the 2023-24 season is the Nations League semifinal on the 15th of June. I suppose he could theoretically lose his job if Italy lose that match, particularly if they get blown away, but I'd be surprised if he did and if that happened. If there was a time to fire Mancini, it would have been after Italy failed to qualify for the World Cup, not after failing to win the Nations League, which is a bit of a Mickey Mouse tournament to begin with. The next filter I would apply is the system that the manager plays. Now, it's not terribly difficult to implement a new system, but it would require the club to be very active on the mercato. For Napoli, this effectively rules out any managers who play with a back three. Now, Napoli could actually field a very strong starting 11 with a back three. It would look something like this, assuming we don't sell any big names. Meret in goal... Rachmani, Kim, and Ostergaard at the back, Di Lorenzo and Gisa, Lobotka, and Oliveira playing as the midfield four, with Di Lorenzo and Oliveira playing as wingbacks, 
In a midfield five, you might include Zielinski or Raspadori as a number 10, or they could play the same role in a 3-4-1-2. And then you have Cavada and Osimen as the front two, even though I think Cavada is better suited to playing on the wing. But that would be a really strong starting 11. The problem is Napoli would need to make quite a few changes to the bench, which admittedly are fairly consistent with the rumors anyways. Zielinski is reported to leave, which would probably be fine. Likewise with Mario Rui, Simeone would stay as the backup number 9. However, we'd need to sign at least one more, if not two more center backs, and we'd need backup wing backs on either side. Zanoli could potentially be the backup to Di Lorenzo because he played that role at Sampdoria, and barring an injury, Di Lorenzo would play most of the time anyhow, but if Mario Rui leaves, we would definitely need a backup left wing back. I also don't know if Elmas would be content being a utility player again for another season, though that issue exists in any formation. So it's not impossible to change formation, but given that we will likely have a new sporting director, I think a change in formation would be biting off a bit more than we could choose. So with that in mind, if we exclude any managers who play with a back three, then we can cross Giampiero Gasparini off the list. There was also a pretty heavy backlash against Gasparini, who many considered to be racist towards the South. That's actually a bit of a misconception that dates back to 2020. Atalanta were playing against Juve and a Napoli fan recorded himself provoking Gasparini, asking him if he's going to roll over for Juve again because at the time, Atalanta had not won a match in Torino since 1989. The reason I say it was a misconception though is because it was actually Gasparini's team manager Mirko Moyoli who made the derogatory comment about Southerners, not Gasparini. Nevertheless, because of that incident, Neapolitans have zero interest in seeing Gasparini coaching Napoli. He's also a very unlikable figure. The formation is another reason to exclude Antonio Conte. We've already excluded him based on salary demands, but if by some miracle he was willing to take a massive pay cut, I think the formation would rule him out as well. Also, Conte is not just expensive in terms of his salary, he's also expensive in terms of the demands he makes for his clubs to spend on players. So that leaves us with six options, again in alphabetical order by surname. Rafa Benitez, Alessio Dionisi, Luis Enrique, Marcelo Gallardo, Vincenzo Italiano, and Tiago Motta. That is not a great list of candidates, if I'm being honest, especially considering we probably could have kept Spalletti had De Laurentiis handled the situation better. None of those Serie A coaches have even come close to winning a Scudetto, let alone a Champions League, which De Laurentiis claims is the next goal. Spalletti never won a league either, but at least he had come close on a couple of occasions. So let me comment a little bit on each of these coaches. Benitez is past it in my opinion. After leaving Napoli, he spent half a season at Real Madrid, finishing third in the table. Anything other than first is a disappointment for Real Madrid. Then he went to Newcastle, where he wasn't able to avoid relegation in his 10 games in charge. However, he did earn promotion back up to the Premier League the following season, before keeping Newcastle in the top flight for two more seasons. Then he moved to China, where he coached for two seasons, before leading Everton to a 14th placed finish in the 2021-22 season. Benitez has also been rumored as a candidate to replace Juntoli as the sporting director, which might actually be a better fit for him at this stage in his career. 
Dionisi is very green. He's only coached two seasons in the top flight since leading Empoli to promotion from Serie B. Both times Sassuolo finished in the middle of the table. However, Sadi had a similar path. He led Empoli to promotion and then finished in 15th place in his first season in Serie A. Then he moved to Napoli and he finished second, third, and second again. Luis Enrique is an intriguing option. He hasn't coached club football for quite some time. His last season in club football was with Barcelona in 2016-17, but his team racked up the trophies over his three seasons. He won the league twice, he won the Champions League once, he won the Copa del Rey in all three seasons, and he won a couple of other trophies as well. So he definitely has the pedigree but that six-year gap does concern me a little bit. Apparently, he also asked for 10 million euros a season from Chelsea, so that salary would probably make him too expensive. Then again, he took a pay cut to coach the Spain national team, so maybe he would accept a lower wage to coach us. Marcelo Gallardo has won everything there is to win in Argentina, but he's never coached in Europe before. Now, he gets bonus points for being Argentinian, But given that inexperience, I think he would be a bit of a gamble. Vincenzo Italiano fits the mold in terms of the formation and the style of play. He's also gotten Fiorentina to two cup finals this season, suggesting that he could have greater success in the Champions League than some of the other options. My biggest concern with Italiano is that his teams are so offensive that they tend to be somewhat weak in defense. That could be a real problem, particularly if we lose Kim Min Jae. He also has another year left on his contract with Fiorentina, so we would need him to get out of that contract before he could sign with Napoli. Finally, Thiago Mota is having his best season in Serie A with Bologna after just barely achieving survival with Spezia. He does have a winning pedigree as a player with PSG, at least domestically of course, PSG have not been able to win the Champions League. He plays a 4-2-3-1 formation, which is very similar to the 4-3-3 and can very easily be adapted. However, like Italiano, he's currently under contract until 2024, so we need him to get out of that contract a year early. So, if I had to rank these six options, I would say Luis Enrique first, Italiano second, Mota third, Gallardo 4th, Dionisi 5th, and Benitez 6th. But in truth, Spalletti is better than all of those options, and I am still going to hold on to hope that we can somehow extend him. Okay, that will do for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating and or a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5 and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Fortsanapoli Pod. I will be back very soon with a mini pod to preview our match against Bologna on Sunday. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Podcast Network. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.